Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. I'm reading from Judges 19, 1 to 30. The Levite's concubine. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite residing in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine became angry with him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband set out after her to speak tenderly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. When he reached her father's house, the girl's father saw him and came with joy to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him for three days. So they ate and drank, and he stayed there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Fortify yourself with a bit of food, and after that you may go. So the two men sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, why not spend the night and enjoy yourself? When the man got up to go, his father-in-law kept urging him until he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he got up early in the morning to leave and the girl's father said, fortify yourself 
So they lingered until the day declined, and the two of them ate and drank. When the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Look, the day has worn on until it is almost evening. Spend the night. See, the day has drawn to a close. Spend the night here and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He got up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was far spent and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will continue on to Gibeah. Then he said to his servant, Come, let us try to reach one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed by and went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. He went in and sat down in the open square of the city, but no one took them in to spend the night. Then at evening, there was an old man coming from his work in the field. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was residing in Gibeah. The people of the place were Benjaminites. When the old man looked up and saw the wayfarer in the open square of the city, he said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? He answered him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to my home. Nobody has offered to take me in. We, your servants, have straw and fodder for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and the woman and the young man along with us. We need nothing more. The old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and fed the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank. Gibeah's crime. While they were enjoying themselves, the men of the city, a depraved lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do this vile thing. Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Ravish them and do whatever you want to them, but against this man. Do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and put her out to them. They wantonly raped her and abused her all through the night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. In the morning, her master got up, 
opened the doors of the house, and when he went out to go on his way, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he said to her, we are going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man set out for his home. When he had entered his house, he took a knife, and grasping his concubine, he cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Then he commanded the men whom he sent, saying, Thus shall you say to all the Israelites, Has such a thing ever happened since the day that the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until this day? Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. It is now just over a year since allegations against Harvey Weinstein began to emerge, giving rise to what has become known as the hashtag MeToo movement. It began when actor Alyssa Milano tweeted, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Since then, hashtag Me Too has either been used as a statement of solidarity on social media or attached to harrowing accounts of harassment and abuse recorded by women and even some men. What the Me Too campaign has done, possibly for the first time, is to provide a global context and platform for victims of violence, particularly sexual violence, to speak up and speak out. For most of human history, the voices of victims have been systemically silenced, with their abuse denied, minimized, or even justified by those who have presumed to speak on behalf of those who have not been allowed to speak for themselves. So, a year on from hashtag MeToo, a number of men associated with the entertainment industry are now in prison, awaiting trial or no longer working. Stories of abuse have been heard and believed, and some measure of justice has been achieved. But then we still live in a world where Brett Kavanaugh can be appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States despite multiple credible allegations of sexual misconduct against him. Clearly, despite hashtag MeToo, the silencing of victims and the diminishing of their testimony is still rife with none other than the President of the United States, arguably the most powerful man in the world, publicly and frequently mocking the Me Too movement, and recently denigrating Professor Christine Blasey Ford, who spoke out so courageously to bring allegations of sexual assault against Trump's friend, Brett Kavanaugh. In a recent article analyzing President Trump's attitude towards women, the American news network CNN says the following. 
During the 2016 presidential campaign, at least 13 women accused Trump of misbehavior, ranging from sexual harassment to sexual assault. They came forward in the wake of the 2005 Access Hollywood tape that was released in October 2016, in which Trump was caught on an open mic saying, and when you're a star, they let you do it, you can do anything, dot, 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 it goes on, you know what he says next, I'm not going to dignify it by repeating it from the pulpit. And so, we come to the scriptures. And if you found yourself wondering why a horrific story, like that of the Levite's concubine, should sit within the pages of our holy book, I think the answer may be found not only in the words of Donald Trump, but also in the story of another biblical woman. In the book of Esther, the eponymous heroine finds herself elevated from the Persian king's harem to the royal bedchamber. And the king is unaware at this point that her ethnic identity is Jewish. When he passes a law to destroy the Jews, Esther's uncle challenges her to speak out, to remain silent no more. And he suggests, problematically, that maybe her experience of sexual exploitation at the hands of a powerful man was, as he puts it, for such a time as this. For both Esther and for the women of the Me Too campaign and movement, the time came to speak out and put an end to silence. But in this, we need to note that speaking out is always difficult and possibly dangerous, and that in no way should it ever be used, as Esther's uncle attempted to do, to justify or redeem the abuse. The abused should not be forced to speak out if they are not ready to do so. But it remains true that the voicing of victims is vital if cultures of silencing are to be overturned. If victims are ready to speak out, they must not be silenced. And so we come to the Levite's concubine. Did you notice she is never permitted to speak in that entire long story? So what can this silenced woman from thousands of years ago say to us? today. What is her message for such a time as this? In order to explore that, I'm afraid we need to take her story on into the next couple of chapters from the book of Judges. To avoid reading them out in full, I'm going to use the words of Jenny Williams to summarize them for us. She takes up the story. Cutting her body up and spreading the pieces across Israel might be deemed as terrible as the gang rape, for it denies her the chance for burial, and to not be buried 
was the worst fate in Israel in that time, as we could see in the case of Jezebel. But the violence does not stop there. The tribes of Israel then begin a war against the men of Gibeah to punish them. The Benjaminites come out on the side of Gibeah, which is in Benjamin, and for two days, the Benjaminites have the upper hand and 40,000 Israelites die. Then on the third day, Benjamin is defeated and over 25,000 Benjaminites die in battle, plus the whole of the city of Gibeah. Once the fighting has died down, the Israelites become concerned for the future of the tribe of Benjamin, as they've sworn in the course of the battle to never marry their daughters to a Benjaminite. So there is now a real chance that the tribe of Benjamin might die out. So their solution is to find a town that did not fight with Israel against Benjamin. It's a town called Jabesh Gilead. So they go there and they execute everyone in the town except for 400 young women who are virgins. These young women are then sent to Shiloh to be married off to the remaining Benjaminites. The Benjaminites cry, this is not enough women for us. And so the Israelite reply is that any Benjaminite who did not get a wife from the 400 who'd come up from Jabesh Gilead should go out and wait for the girls of the town of Shiloh who are going to be coming out to dance at a festival. And then if they like one, they can take her and perform what is commonly called marriage by rape. And she is now his. Just when you thought the story couldn't get any worse. The violence done to the concubine at the hands of the men of Gibeah and her husband leads to widespread warfare, mass killing, and further widespread sexual violence against women. And whilst this story is both surprising and shocking, and certainly little read and little preached upon in our churches, I would be fascinated to know afterwards if any of you have ever heard this read in church before. It probably shouldn't surprise us that in ancient times as now, violence against women was rife both within the home and within society. Rape as a weapon of war is commonplace. I recently completed some training from the Baptist Union about domestic violence. And the figures for our society are frightening. This is not just something that happens over there. According to the latest figures from the Home Office, one in four women in the UK will experience domestic abuse at some point in their lifetime. Also, one in six men will experience domestic abuse at some point in their lifetime. Also, one in five children are exposed to domestic abuse. The average number of assaults <coughs> suffered before a domestic abuse victim first calls the police is 35. And two women per week are murdered in the UK by their partner or ex-partner. And I'm afraid 
that if Christians tell themselves that domestic violence doesn't happen in Christian homes, not only are they deceiving themselves, but they are participating in the silencing of victims and in perpetuating the culture of abuse. The Baptist Union say, and I'm just going to quote from a Baptist Union document for a moment, we would hope that Baptist churches demonstrate a culture and environment where all people are safe and where anyone is able to express any fears, anxieties and concerns that they have without the fear of ridicule, rejection or judgment. Churches should be places of refuge and safety where victims are supported and cared for without pressure or hurrying. They should be communities that condemn violence and abuse and that challenge and support perpetrators to change their behavior. Sadly, churches have not always responded well to incidents of abuse when people have found the courage to ask for help. This has partly been due to a lack of understanding about domestic abuse and its impact, and partly due to the misguided use of the Bible to justify and perpetuate abuse, particularly against women. So says the Baptist Union training document on domestic abuse. We live in a culture where sexual violence is normalized and where assaults within the home are written off as domestics. Within Christian culture, too often we see the outworking of a warped view of biblical headship where the woman is in effect the property of her husband and the man is seen as having a godly right to discipline his wife. To get behind this, we need to analyse it further. And I want to introduce here the phrase rape culture. This term was originally coined by feminists in the 1970s and was designed to show the ways in which society blames victims of sexual assault and also normalises male sexual violence. Definition for you, rape culture. This is from uh, Emily Buchwald uh, describing this process of society normalising sexual violence and accepting, uh, accepting and creating rape culture. She says it is a complex set of beliefs that encourage male sexual aggression and support violence against women. It's a, rape culture is a society where violence is seen as sexy and sexuality as violent. I'm, uh, I'm, gonna just, I'm trying to remember the song. Some of you will know this better than me. Uh, Lady Gaga, Poker Face. Uh, if, it, if it's not rough, it isn't fun. Have I got that line right? In a rape culture, women perceive a continuum of threatened violence that ranges from sexual remarks to sexual touching to rape itself. And a rape culture condones physical and emotional terrorism against women as the norm. In a rape culture, both men and women assume that sexual violence is a fact of life, that it is inevitable. However, much of what we might accept as inevitable is in fact the expression of attitudes and values that can change. So rape culture includes jokes, TV, music, 
advertising, legal jargon, laws, words, and imagery that make violence against women and sexual coercion seem so normal that people believe rape is inevitable. You don't have to spend very long on the internet to come across rape jokes. You might look at me askance at this, but it is true. Rather than viewing the culture of rape as a problem to change, people in rape culture think about the persistence of rape as just the way things are. And I am afraid to say that our culture, here in the UK, here in London, in many areas, is a rape culture. Those of us who might identify as middle-class Christians may be removed from much of what goes on in the wider world around us. But those who know what it's like in schools, in gangs, and on the streets of our city will tell us that sexual violence against women is utterly rife. The story of the Levite's concubine starts to sound more contemporary by the moment. There's an important website called the Shiloh Project. I'd encourage you to go away and, and read it later if you're interested in taking this further. It's called the Shiloh Project because it's named after the place where the marriage by rape story is set in the book of Judges. Remember the, the young girls of Shiloh are going out to dance and the men can just take them. And the Shiloh Project offers some deeply moving perspectives on how the Bible shapes contemporary attitudes towards rape and sexual assault. So the Shiloh Project says, as a, uh, as a deeply influential and cultural document, the Bible has a lot to say when it comes to attitudes around sex, shame, and gender identity. They say rape is endemic in the Bible, both literally and metaphorically, and more often than not functions as a conduit for male competition and as a tool to uphold patriarchy. The Shiloh Project is part of the Sheffield University Biblical Studies Department. And I say this with a, a little bit of pride in my voice because this is where Liz and I both studied in the early 1990s when we did our Biblical Studies degrees. And I'm pleased to see that the university that we were part of and the department we were part of continues to address issues about how the Bible functions in culture in this kind of way. I would suggest if you want to take this further, spend an hour or two reading the Shiloh Project website. It's easy to find. Uh, it's not easy reading, but it's worth the effort. Back to the Levite's concubine. The unnamed and unvoiced concubine's story echoes down the millennia to us as she screams in pain at us through the pages of our scriptures, forcing us to confront the horrific realities of our own time our own culture, our own friends, maybe our own lives, and our own families. And her dismembered body challenges us as it challenged Israel of old, asking us what we are going to do about the grim reality of sexual violence, domestic abuse, and the systemic silencing and shaming of victims. A key determining factor in our response, I think, 
will be where we see God in relation to this issue. The Israelites in the story saw God as being firmly on their side. As they went to war with the Benjaminites to avenge the death of the Levites' concubine. And their self-righteous crusade to rid the land of evil ended up compounding not only the sexual violence against women by a factor of over 400, but also triggering mass warfare in the death of tens of thousands. We need to be very careful before we start thinking that God is on our side, if we are the powerful, setting out to avenge someone else who has been wronged. Because we will almost certainly end up blinded to the darkness of our own hearts and end up magnifying rather than correcting the evil. This is why I remain very cautious about the culture of scapegoating that we see in our society, where individuals who have transgressed are targeted and kind of become the focus of our communal angst at their wrongdoing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that men who abuse women are prosecuted. I'm glad that victims are discovering a voice and are speaking out the truth of what has been done to them. But that doesn't let the rest of us off. And pointing vehemently at the evil over there that is whatever the latest celebrity who has been outed represents, can simply become a deflection mechanism for the abuse that we're ignoring in, in here, in our own institutions, our own lives, and our own families. You see, God is not on the side of the righteous avenger. God is always, always on the side of the victim. God is with the voiceless, with the silenced and the abused, far more than God is with the powerful and the self-righteous. Do you remember the story of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch we had what feels like a lifetime ago earlier in the service? And their conversation on the road outside Jerusalem not so far from where the Levite's concubine was raped to death. Philip hears the eunuch reading from the prophet Isaiah and asks him if he understands what he's reading. And the passage is from what we would call the suffering servant song of Isaiah, from Isaiah 53. Uh, here it is from Acts, quoting Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asks Philip a key question. About whom, he says, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And in this, he captures the problem that Christians have had in interpreting this passage ever since. You see, it's not about Jesus, but it is about Jesus. In the context of Isaiah, at the time Isaiah was writing, the suffering servant was the nation of Israel. 
The silenced victim, humiliated like a lamb before its shearer, was Israel in exile in Babylon. The one whose life was taken away in violence was Israel, God's people. And so Philip starts to speak to the eunuch, and he uses this scripture to speak about the good news of Jesus. And he, like we, sees in the life and death of Jesus the activity of God in the vulnerable and the victimized. He sees God present in the violence against the innocent that he sees in Christ on the cross. Just as Isaiah saw God present in the violence against the innocent that he saw in God in Israel in exile in uh, Babylon. And if Philip and the eunuch, and of course the eunuch himself was a man who had suffered sexualized violence, he wouldn't have been born a eunuch, he'd have been made that way. If they had turned the pages of their scriptures a few pages back from Isaiah, and the eunuch had been reading the story of the Levite's concubine instead of the suffering servant in Isaiah, I wonder if Philip would also have said that in her too is found the presence of God. Maybe the good news of Jesus that Philip proclaims on the roadside outside Jerusalem is that God is present in Christ with all those who are victims. They may be silenced, but God is listening to that silence, hearing the silent screams of those who cannot speak out. God was present in Christ in agony on the cross. God was present with Israel in exile in Babylon. God was present as a young woman was raped to death outside Jerusalem. God was present as 400 young women were given to men as their wives. God was present as women who had gone to dance at a festival were taken away and raped into marriage. And God is present when women are raped and killed on the streets and in the parks of our city. And God is present when women are abused in homes, even Christian homes, by their husbands. And God is present whenever a victim is silenced. And as the people of God in our age, we need to learn to hear the voices that cry out in silence. And we need to learn that God is not on our side, but rather is present with and in and through all those who face violent and voiceless futures. So we cannot ignore this horrific story from our scriptures. Just as we cannot turn away from the horrific reality of our world. Because to do so is to perpetuate the culture of violence that Christ came to transform. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for the church. Help us to share the fully in the church family. We pray for people who are blind. Help them to see Jesus. We pray for people who are deaf. Help them to hear Jesus. We pray for people who cannot use the legs. Help them to walk with Jesus. We pray for people 
Let us continue in prayer. God of the cross, we turn to you from a world of weakness and violence. With heavy hearts and troubled souls, we recognize what we should probably have always known, that the capacity for violence lies deep within the human condition and affects each of us in different ways. We pray today for the victims of sexual violence, for those who are abused, disvoiced and silenced. Bring comfort where there is hurt, Bring healing where there is harm. Bring peace where there is chaos. Bring justice where there is none. We pray for social workers and the police and all entrusted with the care of those who have been harmed. Give them care in listening and strength in action. We pray for counsellors and therapists and for all who offer companionship to those making painful journeys of the soul. May they have the ability to discern the right words to offer and the wisdom of know, to know when to keep silence. We pray for prison guards and probation officers and for all those who deal daily with people who have committed violent acts. May they never lose sight of the humanity of each human soul and may rehabilitation always be the goal. We pray for all those who are victims of unseen, unacknowledged and unreported sexual violence from the back streets of our city to the closed doors of respectable houses. We pray for children who witness assault in the home and for all those who are powerless to protect those whom they love. God of the cross, your response to the pain and hurt of the world has always been to enter fully into the depths of our darkest humanity. So come now into the darkness of our times and our lives. Come to bring release from fear and hurt. Come to bring comfort and healing of the soul and the body. Come to bring courage in the face of terror. Come to bring the good news of the cross. We offer all our prayers in the name of Jesus, our friend and saviour. Amen. <laughs> 